careof.com. You know your body. Careof knows science. Uh, work together with Careof to find the right vitamins, protein, and now collagen too personalized just for you. Healthy doesn't have to be hard. Careof will make it easy. Take the quiz. Tell us a little about yourself. Careof is good listeners. Get nutrients at work. Get your personalized recommendation backed by science and delivered to you. Stick with it long term. Keep the conversation going. Careof will adjust as your health needs change. A routine tailored to you. Careof will help you create a health plan with vitamins, supplements, and more that help you feel your best today and support you long term. Careof is with you. Once you have your tailored plan, Careof will help you stick with it, track your supplements, learn about how they work, and get new recommendations as your health changes, all in Careof's handy app. Say hello to your new healthy habit. Honest guidance. Careof will promise to be honest with you. That means Careof will show you the research and the and be transparent about how established it is. Careof, don't pretend all supplements have equal levels of scientific evidence or traditional history because that isn't in the truth. But Careof will always show their work and tailor their guidance to you as an individual. Better ingredients. Careof's research and development development team has traveled the globe so they can provide the most effective, bioavailable, and sustainable ingredients possible. Careof is transparent about their supply chain because they build products they want to take, and then they deliver straight to your door. SimplySafe.com Whole home protection, protection for every window room and door against intruders, fires, water damage, medical emergencies and more. Almost all monitored 24-7 by professionals ready to dispatch police. Everything you need to know. Experts choose SuperSafe Home Security, named the best home security overall by US News and World Report and awarded by Popular Mechanics and more. Live professional live professional alerts Sympathist monitoring staff calls you when trouble is detected and stays with you until it's solved. Dispatch faster with visual verification. Adding visual verification to your monitoring plan lets Sympathist verify your alarm is, is real, so please can dispatch faster. It's a lot less expensive. Sympathist cuts out the middleman and markup so you get more security for less with no contact. Prepared for the unexpected. Lose power, lose Wi-Fi. Someone attacks the system. Natural disasters. Simple safe is ready. Protects against fires and water damage. More than just intruders. Simple safe pros monitor against leaks, floods, fires, and more. Keep an eye inside and out. With HD security cameras for indoors and out, see what's happening all the time. Designed to disappear. From the tiny size of SuperSafe sensors to easy one-touch control means you'll never notice your security system. Detects people, ignores pets. Motion sensors use a precision human form detection algorithm. 
Compare your security options. Traditional home security. Monitored by professionals, 36 month. Contact monitoring costs, 37 to 53 a month. Hardwired needs a landline. Poor rating on Trustpilot. Simply safe, the better way. Monitored by professionals, no contracts. Wireless, no. No drilling or landline required. Great rating on Trustpilot. Easy to set up yourself in no time. Here's how it works. Choose your security sensors. SimpleSafe will walk you through exactly what your home needs and ship it to your front door in under a week. Set it up in just a few minutes. No tools needed or let one of SimpleSafe's pros do it for you. Sensors. Guard all your rooms and entry points. If there's a trouble, SimpleSafe Monitoring Center will call you and, if needed, dispatch all authorities. More reason to choose SimpleSafe. Arm and disarm from anywhere. Forgot to arm your system? Need to let someone in? Do it right from your phone anytime. Almost never change your batteries? Batteries lost for almost a decade. As SimpleSafe entry sensors, the best lifespan in the industry, better life may vary based on use. Alexa, arm my system. Use your system with Alexa, Google Assistant, August Locks, Apple Watch, and more. Keep an eye on cabinet safes and more. Secret alerts quietly alert you if someone accesses private areas without sounding an alarm. Customize for your home. SimpleSafe will customize the right system for your home's needs. Incredible range. Many wireless security systems struggle to cover your entire house. SimpleSafe can cover large homes with ease. Custom alerts for friends and family. Set up text alerts so friends and family stay in the know. Duress pin. If someone forces you to disarm your system, your duress pin will secretly alert the authorities. Meet the station. Busy station. The the brains comes with a built-in cell connection to rapidly alert your SimpleSafe emergency dispatch center. Try it, test it, love it, or return it. Test SimpleSafe in your home for 60 days. Your system arrives ready to work, no drilling or tools needed. If you aren't 100% satisfied, return it for a full refund. We'll even pay return shipping. Good morning. I hope all you fathers out here have a wonderful Father's Day. And any of you, any single mothers out there who are playing both roles, I guess the kind of way it kind of makes you a father too, whatever the case may be in your situation. Uh, here is the part three of U.S. President number seventeen, Andrew Johnson. Presidency, eighteen sixty-five to eighteen sixty-nine. Accession. On the afternoon of April fourteenth, eighteen sixty-five, Lincoln and Johnson met for the first time since the inauguration. Trefu states that Johnson wanted to induce Lincoln not to be too lenient with traitors. Gordon Reed agrees. That night, President Lincoln was shot and mortally wounded by John Wilkes Booth, a 
Confederate sympathizer. The shooting of the president was part of a conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln, Johnson, and Seward the same night. Seward barely survived his wounds while Johnson escaped attack as his would-be assassin. George Asterod got drunk instead of killing the vice president. Leonard J. Farwell, a fellow border at the Kirkwood House, awoke Johnson with news of Lincoln's shooting at Ford's Theater. Johnson rushed to the president's deathbed where he remained in a short time. On his return, promising, they shall suffer for this, they shall suffer for this. Lincoln died at 7.22 a.m. the next morning. Johnson swearing in occurred between 10 and 11 a.m. with just Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase presiding in the presence of the most of most of the cabinet. Johnson's demeanor was described by the news as solemn and dignified. Some cabinet members had last seen Johnson apparently drunk at the inauguration. At noon, Johnson conducted his first cabinet meeting in the Treasury Secretary's office and asked all members to remain in their positions. The events of assassination resulted in speculation then and subsequently concerned Johnson and what the conspirators might have intended for him in the vain hope of having his life spared after his capture. Asterot spoke much about the conspiracy but did not say anything to indicate that the plot assassination of Johnson was merely a ruse. Conspiracy theorists point to the fact that on the day of the assassination, Booth came to the Kirkwood house and left one of his cards with Johnson's private secretary, William A. Browning. The message on it was, don't wish to disturb you, are you at home? Wilkes Booth. J. Wilkes Booth. Johnson presided with dignity over Lincoln's funeral ceremonies in Washington before his predecessor's body was sent home to Springfield, Illinois for internment. Shortly after Lincoln's death, Union General William T. Sherman reported he had, without consulting Washington reached an armistice agreement with Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston for the surrender of Confederate forces in North Carolina in exchange for the existing state government remaining in power with private property rights slaves to be respected. This did not even grant freedom to those in slavery. This was not acceptable to Johnston or the cabinet, who sent word for Sherman to secure the surrender without making political deals, which he did. Further, Johnston placed a $100,000 battery equivalent $1.67 million in 2019 on Confederate President J. Davis, then a fugitive, which gave Johnson the reputation of a man who would be tough on the South. More controversially, he permitted the execution of Mary Surratt for a part in Lincoln's assassination. Surratt was executed with three others, including Azra, on July 7, 1865. Reconstruction Background Upon taking office, Johnson faced the question of what to do with the Confederacy. President Lincoln authorized loyalist governments in Virginia, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Tennessee as the Union came to control those large parts of those states and advocated a 10% plan that would allow elections after 10% of the voters in any state took an oath of future loyalty to the Union. Congress considered this too lenient its own plan, requiring a majority of voters to take the loyalty oath past both houses in 1864, but Lincoln pocket vetoed it. Johnson had three goals in Reconstruction. He sought a speedy restoration of the states on the grounds that they had never truly left the Union and that should again, should again be recognized once loyal citizens formed a government. To Johnson, African-American suffrage was a delay and a distraction. It had always been a state responsibility to decide who should vote. Second, political power in the southern states should pass from the planted class to its beloved plebeians. Johnson feared that the freedmen many of whom who were still economically bound to the former masters might vote at their direction. Johnson's third priority was election in his own right in 1868, a feat no one had 
No one who has succeeded as the state's president had managed to accomplish attempted to secure a Democratic anti-congressional reconstruction coalition in the South. The Republicans informed a number of factions. The radical Republicans sought voting and other civil rights for African Americans. They believed that the freedmen could be induced to vote Republican in gratitude for emancipation and that the black votes could keep the Republicans in power and Southern Democrats, including former rebels, out of influence. They believed that top Confederates should be punished. The most the moderate Republicans sought to keep the Democrats out of power at a national level and prevent former rebels from resuming power. They were not as enthusiastic about the idea of African-American suffrage as their radical colleagues, either because of their own political, local political centers or because they believed that the freedmen would be likely to cast his vote badly. Northern Democrats favored the coalition restoration of the southern states. They did not support African-American suffrage, which might threaten Democratic control in the South. Presidential Reconstruction Johnson was initially left to devise a reconstruction policy without legislative intervention as Congress was not due to meet again until December 1865. Radical Republicans told the President that their southern states were economically in a state of chaos and urged him to use his leverage to insist on rights for freedmen as a condition of restoration to the Union. But Johnson, with the support of other officials including Seward, insisted that the franchise was a state, not a federal matter. The cabinet was divided on the issue. Johnson's first reconstruction actions were two proclamations with the unanimous backing of his cabinet on May 29th. One recognized the Virginia government led by provisional Governor Francis Pierpont. The second provided amnesty for all ex-rebels except those holding property valued at $20,000 or more. It also appointed a temporary governor for North Carolina that authorized elections and authorized elections. Neither of these proclamations included provisions regarding black suffrage or freedmen's rights. The president ordered constitutional conventions in other former rebel states. As southern states began the process of forming governments, Johnson's policy received considerable public support in the North, which he took as unconditional backing for quick reinstatement of the South. While he received such support from the white South, he underestimated the determination of Northerners to ensure that the war had not been fought for nothing. It was important in Northern public opinion that the slave, as the South acknowledged its defeat, that slavery be ended, and that the lot of African Americans be improved. Voting rights were less important. After all, only a handful of Northern states, mostly in New England, gave African American men the right to vote on the same basis as whites, and in the late 1865, Connecticut, Wisconsin, and Minnesota voted down African-American suffrage proposals by large margins. Northern public opinion tolerated Johnson's inaction to unblock suffrage as an experiment to be allowed if, if it quickened Southern acceptance of defeat. Instead, white Southerners felt emboldened a number of Southern states passed black codes binding African-American laborers to farms on actual contracts. They could not quit and allow law enforcement and women to arrest them for vagrancy and rent out their labor. Most Southerners elected to Congress were former Confederates, with the most prominent being Georgia Senator Des Designate and former Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. Congress assembled in early December 1865 Johnson's conciliatory annual message to them as well as received. Nevertheless, Congress refused to seat the Southern Legislature and establish a committee to recommend appropriate reconstruction legislation. Northerners were outraged at the idea of unrepentant Confederate leaders such as Stevens rejoining the federal government at a time when emotional wounds from the war remained raw. They saw the black codes placing African Americans in a position barely about slavery. Republicans also feared that restoration of the southern states would return 
the Democrats to power, in addition, according to David O. Stewart, in his book on Johnson's impeachment, the violence and poverty that oppressed the South would galvanize the opposition to Johnson. Break with the Republicans, 1866. Congress was, was reluctant to, to confront the president and initially they only sought to fine-tune Johnson's policies toward the South. According to Trefuse, if there was a time when Johnson could have come to an agreement with the moderates of the Republican Party, it was a period following the return of Congress. The president was unhappy about the provocative actions of the southern states and about the continued control by the antebellum elite there, but made no statement publicly, believing that Southerners had a right to act as they did, even if it was unwise to do so. By late January 1866, he was convinced that winning a showdown with the radical Republicans was necessary to his political plans, both for the success of Reconstruction and for re-election in 1868. He would have preferred that the conflict arise over the legislative efforts to enfranchise African Americans in the District of Columbia, a proposal that had been defeated overwhelmingly in, all white, in an all-white referendum. A bill to accomplish this passed the House of Representatives, but to Johnson's disappointment, stalled in the Senate before he could veto it. Illinois Senator Lyman Trumbull, leader of the moderate Republicans and chairman of the Judiciary Committee, was anxious to reach an understanding with the president. He ushered through Congress a bill extending the Freedmen's Bureau beyond its scheduled abolition in 1867 and the first civil rights bill to grant citizenship to the freedmen. Trumbull met several times with Johnson and was convinced that the president would sign the measures. Johnson rarely contradicted visitors, often fooling those who met with him into thinking he was in accord. In fact, the president opposed both bills as infringement on state sovereignty. Additionally, both of Trumbull's bills were unpopular among the white Southerners, whom Johnson hoped to include in his new party. Johnson vetoed the Freedmen's Bureau Bill on February 18, 1866, to the delight of white Southerners and the puzzled anger of Republican legislatures. He considered himself vindicated when a move to override his veto failed in the Senate the following day. Johnson believed that the radicals would now be isolated, defeated, and that the moderate Republicans would form behind him. He did not understand that moderates also wanted to see African Americans treated fairly. On February 22, 1866, Washington's birthday, Johnson gave an impromptu speech to supporters who had marched to the White House and called for an address in honor of the first president. In his hour-long speech, he, he instead referred to himself over 200 times. More damagingly, he also spoke of Men, while still opposed to the Union, to whom he could not extend the hand of friendship he gave to the South. When called upon by the crowd to say who they were, Johnson named public Pennsylvania Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, and abolitionist Wendell Phillips, and accused them of plotting his assassination. Republicans viewed the address as a declaration of war, while one Democratic ally estimated Johnson's speech cost the party 200,000 votes in the 1866 congressional midterm elections. Although strongly urged by the moderates to sign the Civil Rights Act of 1866, Johnson broke decisively, broke decisively with them by vetoing on March 27th. In his veto message, he objected to the measure because it conferred citizenship on the freedmen at the time when 11 out of 36 states were, not, were unrepresented in the Congress and that discriminated in favor of African Americans and against whites. Within three weeks, Congress had overridden his veto, the first time that had been done on a major bill in American history. The veto, often seen as a key mistake of Johnson's presidency, convinced Monterey there was no hope of working with him. Historian Eric Foner, in his volume on Reconstruction, views it as the most disastrous miscalculation of his political career. According to Stewart, the veto was for many of his
For many, it's a defining blunder, setting a tone of perpetual confrontation with Congress that prevailed for the rest of its presidency. Congress also proposed the 14th Amendment to the states, written by Trimble and others. It was set for ratification by state legislatures in a process in which the president plays no part, though Johnson opposed it. The amendment was designed to put the key provisions of the Civil Rights Act into the Constitution, but also went further. The amendment extended essentially to every person born in the United States except Indians on reservations, penalized states that did not give the vote to freedmen, and most importantly created new federal civil rights that could be protected by federal courts. It also guaranteed that the federal debt would be paid and forbade repayment of Confederate war debts. Further, it disqualified many former Confederates from office, although the disability could be removed by Congress, not the President. Both houses passed the Freedmen's Bureau Act a second time, and again, the President vetoed it. This time, the veto was overridden by the summer of 1866, when Congress finally returned Johnson's method of restoring states to the Union by executive flat fiat without safeguards for the freedmen was in deep trouble. His home state of Tennessee ratified the 14th Amendment despite the President's opposition. When Tennessee did so, Congress immediately ceded its proposed delegation, embarrassing Johnson. Efforts to compromise failed and a political war ensued between the United Republicans on one side and on the other, Johnson and his northern and southern allies in the Democratic Party. He called the convention of the Na National Union Party Republicans had returned to using their previous identifier. Johnson intended to use a discarded name to unite his supporters and gain election to a full term in 1868. The battleground was the election of 1866. Southern states were not allowed to vote. Johnson campaigned vigorously, undertaking the, a public speaking tour known as the Swing Around as a Swing Around the Circle. The trip includes speeches in Chicago, St. Louis. Indianapolis and Columbus proved politically disastrous, with the president making controversial comparisons between himself and Christ and engaging in arguments with hecklers. These exchanges were attacked as beneath the dignity of the presidency. The Republicans won by a landslide, increasing their two-thirds majority in Congress, and made plans to control Reconstruction. Johnson blamed the Congress for giving only lukewarm support to the National Union movement. Radical Reconstruction Even with the Republican victory in November 1866, Johnson considered himself in a strong position. The 14th Amendment had been ratified by none of the Southern or born except Tennessee and had been rejected in Kentucky, Delaware, and Maryland. As the amendment required ratification by three-fourths of the states to become part of the Constitution, he believed the deadlock would be broken in his favor, leading to his election in 1868. Once it reconvened in December 1866, the Energized Congress began passing legislation, often over a presidential veto. This included the District of Columbia veto voting bill, Congress admitted Nebraska to the Union over a veto, and the Republican gained two senators and a state that promptly ratified the amendment. Johnson's veto of a bill for statehood for Colorado Territory was sustained. Enough senators agreed that a district with a population of 30,000 was not yet worthy of statehood to win the day. In January 1867, Congress Stevens, Congressman Stevens introduced legislation to dissolve the southern state governments and reconstitute them into five military districts under martial law. The states would begin again by holding constitutional conventions. African Americans could vote for or become delegates. Former Confederates could not. In the legislative process, Congress added to the bill that restoration to the Union would follow the state's ratification of the 14th Amendment and completion of the process of adding it to the Constitution. Johnson and the Southerners attempted a compromise whereby the South would agree to a modified version of the amendment, 
without the disqualification of former Confederates and for limited black suffrage. The Republicans listed the point insisted on the full language of the amendment and the def- deal fell through, although Johnson could have pocket vetoed the first Reconstruction Act as it was presented to him less than 10 days before the end of the 39th Congress. He chose to veto it directly on March 2, 1867. Congress overruled him the same day. Also on March 2, Congress passed the Tenure of Office Act over the President's veto in response to the statements during the swing around the circle that he planned to fire cabinet secretaries who could not who did not agree with him. This bill requiring Senate approval for the firing of cabinet members during the tenure of the president who appointed them and for one month afterwards is immediately controversial with some senators doubting that it was constitutional or that its terms applied to Johnson, whose key cabinet officers were Lincoln left to holdovers. Impeachment. Secretary of War Edmund Stanton was an able and hardworking man, but difficult to deal with. Johnson both admired and was exasperated by his war secretary, who in combination with General of the Army Grant worked to undermine the President's Southern policy from within his own administration. Johnson considered firing Stanton but respected him for his wartime services secretary. Stanton, for his part, feared allowing Johnson to appoint his successor and refused to resign despite his public disagreements with his pres- president. The new Congress met for a few weeks in March 1867 and adjourned, leaving the House Committee on the Judiciary behind charge was reporting back to the full House whether there were grounds for Johnson to be impeached. This committee duly met, examined the president's bank accounts and summoned members of the cabinet to testify when a federal court released former Confederate President Davis on bail on May 13th. He had been captured shortly after the war. The committee investigated whether the president had impeded the prosecution. It learned that Johnson was eager to have Davis tried. A bipartisan majority of the committee voted down impeachment charges. The committee adjourned on June 3rd. Later in June, Johnson and Stanton battled over the question of whether the military officers placed in command of the South could override the civil authorities. The president had Attorney General Henry Stanbury issue an opinion backing his position that they could not. Johnson sought to pin down Stanton either as for and thus endorsing Johnson's position or against showing himself to be opposed to his president and the rest of the cabinet. Stanton evaded the point in the meeting and written to communications when the Congress reconvened in July. It passed the Reconstruction Act against Johnson's position, waited for his veto, overruled it, and went home. In addition to clarifying the powers of the generals, the legislature also deprived the president of control over the army in the South. With Congress in recess until November, Johnson decided to fire Stanton and relieve one of the military commanders, General Philip Sheridan, who had dismissed the governor of Texas and installed a replacement with, popular po- with little popular support. Johnson was initially deterred by a strong objection from Grant, but on August 5th, the president demanded Stanton's resignation. The secretary refused to quit with Congress out of succession. Johnson then suspended him pending the next meeting of Congress as permitted under the (coughs) Tenure of Office Act. Grant agreed to serve as temporary president while continuing to lead the army. Grant under protest follows Johnson's order transferring Sheridan and another of the district commanders, Daniel Sickles, who angered, who had angered Johnson by firmly following Congress's plan. The president also issued a proclamation pardoning the most Confederates, excepting those who held office under the Confederacy or who had served in federal office before the war, but had re, had breached their oaths through. Pro, pro, 
Preacher Oaths. Although Republicans expressed anger with his actions, the 1867 elections generally went Democratic. No seats in Congress were directly elected in the polling, but the Democrats took control of the Ohio General Assembly, allowing them to defeat the re-elect for re-election one of Johnson's strongest opponents, Senator Benjamin Wade. Voters in Ohio, Connecticut, and Minnesota turned down propositions to grant African Americans to vote. The adverse results momentarily put a stop to Republican calls to impeach Johnson, who was elated by the elections. Nevertheless, once Congress met in November, the Judiciary Committee reversed itself and passed a resolution of impeachment against Johnson after much debate about whether anything the president had done was a high crime or misdemeanor. The standard under the Constitution, the resolution was defeated by the House of Representatives on December 7, 1867, by a vote of 57 in favor of 108 opposed. Johnson notified Congress of Stanton's suspension and grant interim appointment in January 1868. The Senate disproved of his actions and reinstated Stanton, contending that the president had violated the Tenure of Office Act. Grant stepped aside as over Johnson's objection, causing a complete break between them. Johnson then dismissed Stanton and appointed Lorenzo Thomas to replace him. Stanton refused to leave his office and on February 24, 1868, the House impeached the President for initially for intentionally violating the Tenure of Office Act by a vote of 128 to 47. The House subsequently adopted 11 articles of impeachment for the most part, alleging that he had violated the Tenure of Office Act and had questioned the legitimacy of Congress. On March 5, 1868, the impeachment trial began in the Senate and lasted almost three months. Congressman George S. Boutwell, Benjamin Butler, and Thaddeus Stevens acted as managers for the House or prosecutors of William N. Evarts. Benjamin Mark Curtis, the former Attorney General Stanbury, were Judge Johnson's counsel. Chief Justice Chase served as presiding judge. The defense relied on the provision of the Tenure of Office Act that made it applicable only to appointees of the current administration since Lincoln had appointed Stanton. The defense maintained Johnson had not violated the, violated the act and also argued that the president had the right to test the constitutionality of the act of Congress. Johnson's counsel insisted that he make no appearance at the trial nor public comment about the proceedings and, expect, and except for a pair of interviews in April, he complied. Johnson maneuvered to gain an acquittal. For example, he pledged to Iowa Senator James N. W. Grimes that he would not interfere with Congress' reconstruction efforts. Grimes reported to a group of moderates, many of whom voted for acquittal, that he believed the president would keep his word. Johnson also promised to install the respected John Schofield as War Secretary. Kansas Senator Edmund G. Ross was assured that the new radical influence Constitution ratified in South Carolina and Arkansas would be transmitted to the Congress without delay, an action which would give him the other senators' political cover to vote for acquittal. One reason senators were elected to remove the president was that his successor would have been Ohio Senator Wade, the president pro tempore of the Senate. Wade, a lame duck who left office in early 1869, was a radical who supported such measures as women's suffrage, placing him beyond the pale, politically in much of the nation. Addition, a president, a president Wade would seem an obstacle to Grant's ambitions. Well, with the deal-making, Johnson was confident of the result in advance of the verdict and in the delay days leading up to the ballot. Newspapers reported that Stevens and his radicals had given up. On May 16th, the Senate voted on the 11th article of impeachment, accusing Johnson of firing Stanton in violation of the Tenure of Office Act once the Senate had overturned the suspension. 35 senators voted guilty and 19 not guilty. 
thus falling short by a single vote of the two-thirds majority requiring for conviction under the Constitution. Several Republicans, Senator Grimes, Ross, Trumbull, William Pitt, Fessenden, Joseph S. Feller, John B. Henderson, and Peter G. Van Winkle voted to acquit the president, with Stevens bitterly disappointed at this. As a result, the Senate did adjourn for the Republican National Convention. Grant was nominated for the president. The Senate returned on May 26th and voted on the second and third articles with identical 35 to 19 results. Faced with those results, Johnson's opponents gave up and dismissed proceedings. Stanton relinquished his office on May 26th, and the Senate subsequently confirmed Schofield when Johnson re-nominated Stanbury to return to his position as Attorney General after his service as a defense manager. The Senate refused to confirm him. Allegations were made at the time and again later that bribery dictated the, out the outcome of the trial, even when it was in progress. President Butler began an investigative held contentious hearings and issued a report endorsed by any other congressman. Butler focused on a New York-based after House group supposedly led by political boss and editor Thurlow Weed. This organization was said to have raised large sums of money from whiskey interests through Cincinnati lawyer Charles Woolley to bribe senators to acquit Johnson. Butler went so far as to imprison Woolley in the Woolley in the Capitol building when he refused to answer questions but failed to prove by bribery. Stay tuned for part four of U.S. President 17, Andrew Johnson.